While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. This is Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Andrew. My name is Craig, and I didn't and know we were doing the intro. I was so uncomfortable with where that was going that I had to toss Pull the up ripcord. the normal intro and just just go for it. I don't. I don't even know if we have an intro anymore. Maybe we just started the show. I don't. Yeah, I think we did. Um, every week. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, and why why would you be? Come on. Every week, we one of us reads a book and explains it to the other one of us. And it's it's just a rip-roaring good time for a fun time was had by all. Wait, we, we haven't even read had the, the time. Would, <laughs> like, that's what, that's what the reviews tomorrow will say was a fun time. Fun time had by all. Who's here reviewing the show? Just don't worry about it. Uh, so this week, Craig read something. Craig, what did you read? I read Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. And I assume this is about a hybrid pig-chameleon sort of animal and his his like trying to fit in in society. Sort of. You almost got the second part right. Okay. So there's no pig... There's no chameleon. Society is there. <laughs> uh, you might consider society a character in in the macro thematic sense. Okay. Um, and definitely people are trying to fit in. Okay. So now, I was like half right, basically. Yeah, it's kind of what I said. You were half right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no pigs. Pygmalion actually derives its name from the Greek myth, Gesundheit. Thank you. That's not the name of the Greek myth. The Greek myth, Pygmalion, uh, where a dude carves a woman out of stone, and then she comes to life, and he wants her, and she says, no, F that. Uh, Why does she say that? Because he's her maker. Well, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it myself. I don't know. I haven't read the myth. Um this is background some good research this good is job. background information okay. um and and it is thematically relevant to the play of course because uh she is too she sees him uh who who are she I and believe him? this is galatia i think pygmalion is the name of the maker okay um i gotta i gotta look it up on air Yes, Pygmalion fell in love with one of his sculptures, which had come to life. Um, I believe the name of the sculpture was Galatia, and she uh, does not reciprocate his love because he is her maker, and he treats her as such. Oh, okay. Um, At least that's the thematic implication in the play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. Okay. That's what I got. Okay, and then this was um, this was later adapted into a musical, right, called My Fair Lady, which I think we'll probably end up talking about a little bit. I mean, neither of us have actually seen it, so 
Yeah, that's a um, big black spot on my film and and musical uh, knowledge is My Fair Lady. Um, I have actually seen Pygmalion, uh, but I've never read it. So I, I had a copy and figured I would I would dive into it. Um, I'm sorry, I said I said film. I think I meant to say musical. I think it became it surely became a film later, right? Yes, it did become a film, but uh, it was a Broadway Broadway musical first in like the early '60s, I think. As yes, I recall. Uh, just as the play Pygmalion became a film, I want to say like 20 years after it was written, Pygmalion premiered in the early 19 teens, and then there was a film made of Pygmalion that George Bernard Shaw worked on. Uh, that was released in 38, I want to say. And actually, My Fair Lady borrows a lot from the screenplay of the film, which has some extra material and added material that is not in the play itself. Right. But Shaw did write a lot of that connecting. Yes, he did work tissue, on the film. Right? He did yeah. work on the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one, one interesting note about, um, about the musical My Fair Lady is... Um, uh, some people are trying to get the rights to to make Pygmalion into a musical, mm-hmm. and um, Shaw had had a bad experience. There, there's a musical called The Chocolate Soldier based on his play Arms and the Man. Uh huh. Yep. And um, he was unhappy with how that turned out, and so he refused anybody else the rights to make any more of his his work into plays but then he died and after that there were no more obstacles to making a well, musical <laughs> and i wonder actually if one of the ways they might have gotten around it was that they were basing the musical off of his screenplay rather than the source play like you know what i mean yeah i wonder if there's some weird contractual stuff that they were able to dodge around also he left some some directions in his will uh about creating you know like creating some sort of english phonetic alphabet and and stuff which will become more apparent after we talk about the play why he might have done that um he his estate didn't have the money to do that when he passed away and it actually wasn't until the all of the royalties started flowing in from my fair lady (laughs) that any of that started to take shape Mm -hmm. uh so so before we get, I feel like we've done a few like preambled type things, we've been but to the I, I end don't of this podcast and back already. I'm going to tell I you that right now. I don't really know much about Shaw. So I mean, he had some crazy stuff in his will. He had bad experiences with having his work adapted in mm-hmm. some cases. Like what else? Is, like what's his deal? His deal is uh, he wrote a lot. That's his main deal. He was born in uh, the 1850s. He died in 1950, so he lived a good 90-some years. Um, And he was a contemporary of Oscar Wilde's, um, a contemporary of Ibsen and other late 19th century playwrights, August Strindberg. Um, He was a socialist, uh, a peaceful socialist, he claimed. Um, And he was kind of those writers there there was a period of time around the turn of the 20th century where i think writers that were grappling with with realism were also trying to figure out how to wrap political themes into their plays um and shaw did plenty of that he was he was he was nominated i think even though he never ran for a position in british parliament um he was definitely a socially conscious artist. 
mm-hmm. and that was reflected in his work. He was also uh, a strong supporter of the middle class um, and believed that, or of the working class, rather, um, and believed that the upper and middle class had kind of taken full advantage of the working class, which is something we kind of saw in Dickens, even though Dickens is writing way earlier than this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you pr- probably one follows directly from the other, I would oh, imagine. Yeah, of course, and I think we talked about this when we were talking about Christmas carols. I think uh, the British experience of class is a little more rigid, but a little more uh, overt than it is in America. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've encountered that, like, I haven't studied that holistically, but I've encountered it through a lot of different works of art and, and movies and, and plays and books and stuff um, where fluidity between, th- there's not as much fluidity between classes in uh, British culture, or at least pr- was perceived, I don't know what it is like right now, um, but this kind of ties into Pygmalion that in British culture that's kind of defined by who you are. It's, it's where you are at birth and that's just kind of the way it is. And you know, God help you. You're never getting out of it. Like people will hear your voice and know where you're from. And and that's that. Right. Um, in America, there is that, but we, we pretend that it doesn't exist because of the American dream. (laughs) I think pretend is a good, I actually just read like some three mile long Atlantic article today about, like American exceptionalism and how this idea that Americans are more upward are like more upwardly mobile than other countries is a thing that like that we believe, even though especially in the last couple decades, it's become less and less true. It's nothing but anecdotal evidence at this point. Right. <laughs> My uncle started a business and sold shares to Apple. Upward mobility. Um well, and not least, to get all political. Yeah, I know. No, it's not even barely. I don't know. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Um, but so where Shaw is coming from here is that uh, he also was a defender of uh, the work of Ibsen, which I talked about a couple of podcasts ago because I'm kind of hung up on Ibsen right now. Um, and he wrote actually something called The Quintessence of Ibsenism, where one of his main quotes from that essay is that it, all of Ibsen's plays had a, had a quote, strong character held out against social hypocrisy. Uh, and so I think there is a lot in what Shaw I've read. Usually he either almost satirically sets his main character out from society, uh, kind of establishing them outside of social mores uh, or has them encounter someone who kind of upends social mores. I know Man and Superman uh, is another play of Shaw's where he's grappling with uh, the idea of an ideal person and and the man, you know, the main character meets his match, who you might argue is the Superman in a woman, um, and strong women kind of feature prominently in Shaw's plays as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in, in Pygmalion, it's interesting because you can either view this strong character as Henry Higgins, the infamous Henry Higgins, uh, who is this phonetics teacher uh, and scholar who is really abrasive and kind of doesn't really respect people, but he claims... Sounds like a jerk. He is kind of a jerk, but he... Uh, there's a really big tract in the in the last scene where he kind of defends himself by saying that he's a jerk to everyone. 
so it's <laughs> yeah, I fine. Did see that and liked it. Like I'm an equal opportunity jerk. Like that's like that's like saying, well, I'm racist, but I hate all races. Yeah, it's like it's equally. not. Yeah, so it's, it's not that, cool. There's no favoritism. There's no opposite of favoritism. He's just he decries all moral and social obligations. Um, or it's Eliza Doolittle, which is the other the other main character, uh, who is this woman that Higgins experiments on, basically uh, by improving her speech, her her dialect from low class uh, London kind of slum dialect to high class high class speech, and she is representative of the the consequences of social mobility um that's kind of a running theme throughout the play so she kind of exists perhaps outside of all these hypocrisies that higgins refuses to to uh acknowledge that he might be a part of if that makes Mm -hmm. sense sure um funny fun bit of trivia that a couple bits of trivia about shaw before we moved on to the play i did not know but he actually helped found the magazine the new statesman which is something that you might still read articles from today Okay. Um, he uh, is also the only man to win the Nobel Prize in Literature and an Oscar. Okay. Uh, I I don't know that if he won the Nobel for anything in like in particular. He won it in the twenties, and then he won an Oscar for his work on the film Pygmalion. Hmm. Uh, which I think is interesting. Maybe. Yeah, that's. <laughs> if he'd lived long <laughs> enough, he might have won an Emmy. Who knows. <laughs> I I find those like those he was the only person who ever did X and for some people they really have to reach for X like they have to find just this really esoteric yeah combination of things that he happened to do like he was the only man with nine toes who who won three Golden Globes <laughs> <laughs> he's the only guy with a mom named Steve to win the Iditarod you know. Mom named Steve. Eh? Isn't that a Johnny Cash song? I felt like that's maybe one of his lesser known <laughs> tunes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you want to talk about this play, I guess? Yeah, talk about this play, I guess. All right. So it's called Pygmalion, if you right. haven't heard by now. Okay. Uh, it takes place in early 20th century London. And it starts with a big crowd scene. Uh, there's rain everywhere and... There's this flower girl who's trying to sell flowers to upper class people and she talks real terribly. Like the way it's written on the page is kind of I'm gonna try and read it to you. I don't do it. Even Shaw abandons it. Like put on like your best Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins and just Oh, it's try gonna be worse than that. Convey this it's to gonna me. be worse. So the thing here is that like Shaw wrote this all down. And after about four or five pages of Eliza Doolittle talking, he abandons it and just kind of puts stage directions for that. Like, until otherwise specified, she sounds this bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so here's her first line. I don't I don't even know what she's saying. Ow, he's you, he's San, is he? Well, feud Dan, you duty bombs a mother should. Eat now better than to spowl a poor girl's flowers and then ran away at that pin. Will you pay me for them? 
like okay that last bit was about you're a jerk who like ruined my flowers and aren't you gonna pay me for ruining my flowers good job the first part i don't even like something about a ball peen hammer How easy. like oh he's you ain't as you said is he <laughs> oh she's saying oh he's your son is he oh uh, okay. he's go. your son is he jesus it's terrible yikes um yeah he can't keep that up for more than a page uh, i like that he does it just long enough that, that you get the gist of it and then he's like okay you have the gist of it yeah like, so, i'm not gonna do this to myself anymore so this whole scene goes on and uh colonel pickering shows up and he's a he's a fine upstanding gentleman and she's trying to sell him flowers and uh this other guy points out that someone in the crowd is writing down everything that eliza is saying and she thinks it's a copper who's going to arrest her or something and it's henry higgins and he's just fascinated by her speech and he like spends a page being a superhero and like whenever someone talks he just identifies exactly where they're from down to like the street cuz he's a phonetic genius so if if he existed today andrew he could tell he could tell you that exactly that you were from ohio or whatever part no it's okay. like that new york times quiz that everybody took right except yeah. the person <laughs> or like he's like the Game of Thrones personality quiz, but for people. <laughs> He's a BuzzFeed article. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, you know, shows off his linguistic skills and then leaves Eliza out in the rain. And uh, they they talk briefly, he and Pickering, because he, he's good friends with Colonel Pickering, about how he could pass this flower girl with a crazy accent off as a duchess. And then they kind of laugh about it and then they leave. So what do you think happens in Act 2, Andrew? Wait, are they talking about her, like, within earshot? Oh, totally. <laughs> and just not? Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, I'm going to pretend like I'm just guessing at what happens in Act 2. But in Act 2, I bet she tracks Henry Higgins down and tries to take him up on his on his offer. Oh, yeah, she totally shows up. And she does t- try to totally take him up on his offer. And it takes a little bit of convincing, uh, mostly because he doesn't know what he would do with her. And her whole goal is, you know, if I learn how to talk like a lady, I can get, I can open my own flower shop. And Colonel Pickering uh, offers to front some of the money for the lessons, and uh, they go ahead with the plan. And then while Eliza's off, like getting changed into like nice people clothes, I don't know, um, her dad shows up, and her dad is probably the best character in the play. Um, how so? He is. He's poor, you know, and he shows up and you'd think the the expectation is that he's going to show up and be like, bring me back my daughter. What are you doing with my daughter? And Higgins is like, you can take her. That's fine. I'm. This is bothering me. I don't know what's going on. And Mr. Doolittle is like, no, I don't want her. She's more trouble than she's worth. I don't care. I'm poor. I'm just here to ask you for $5. Like, what? And he gives this whole speech about... Uh, middle middle class morality. Um, I'm gonna try and find like the really good line about what, how he sums up middle class morality. He says, uh, "What is middle class morality? Just an excuse for never giving me anything." <laughs> <laughs> and he calls himself the undeserving poor. So he kind of puts himself in this class of people that like could get by because they're they are smart, but they're uneducated and kind of lazy. 
and they spend their money on drink, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, but he does admit that it's like part of a class of people that are kind of stuck in their own system. Mm-hmm. And he kind of guilts these guys into giving him like a couple pounds based on this argument that like, you know, people look at me and say, well, I don't deserve any help for how poor I am. I'm not poor enough. Like, what am I supposed to do kind of thing? Right. And it's all phrased in, in ways that is oddly humorous uh, for the for the plight that he is in. And, and when I did see the play a couple of years ago, I, I do remember him getting a lot of laughs. Um, he's pretty good. Um, so he comes through and, and he's, a, he's a welcome change of pace. And then there's a bit where Eliza, like, enters the room and, you know, you think that... She, Maybe that's going to wind up with her, like, going going with her dad. She shows up, like, dressed in a kimono. Let me let me read you the stage directions. Cause it seems inappropriate. I mean, it is early 20th century. Um, Doolittle says, thank you, Governor. Good morning. And he hurries to the door, anxious to get away with his booty. Uh, when he opens it, he is confronted with a dainty and exquisitely clean young Japanese lady. In a Whoa, simple what? blue cotton kimono printed cunningly with small white jasmine blossoms. Now, is this just how she feels like a nice lady would dress? Or why is what is the deal with the kimono? They gave her nice clothes. I guess it was fashionable. Um, and then Doolittle says, beg pardon. And she goes, Garn, don't you know your own daughter? And they're all like, oh, God, it's Eliza. So I don't, <laughs> I think... I don't remember them dressing her up like a Japanese woman. That seems like a, a bit of dated, almost. Yeah, racism. like maybe maybe you could replace that with something else. Just make her and, look pretty. And still get the point across. <laughs> I don't maybe because uh, they burn all of her old clothes. Like that's very that's a point that keeps getting brought up throughout the play. Is that like they're gonna make her into a lady, and so they get rid of everything that she owned. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's that's like symbolically important because they're trying to destroy all the evidence that she was ever anything but a proper lady and, yes. and whatever. So the idea being that he can teach he can teach her to speak like a lady, and that will pass her off as a lady, which is in in and of itself, Shaw is you know commenting on class and and what makes class right, right. and like outward appearance versus inwards whatever <laughs> yeah and, and you see that even today with with you know discussions of uh politicians and and people trying to hide where they came from or not you know um so then the next scene uh i mean like obama yeah or others people from the south maybe or they they worry a little bit less about it white people from the south worry a little less about it or people who aren't from america at all you need like to ins- obama you need to inspect 9-11 andrew <laughs> <laughs> the truth is out there the truth is anyway out there. go go ahead um, with your story so the thing that happens next is you don't see any of the um you don't see any of the transformation itself she just kind of shows up in the next scene at uh, Higgins's mom's house and there's like a crowd of people there and he's instructed her to talk about the weather and about people's health 
which basically means she like point blank asks a bunch of people if they're sick and then talks about how she thinks her aunt is being poisoned by other people and <laughs> the joke being that yes she knows how to pronounce the words but she doesn't know what to talk about kind of thing um and it the scene ends with one of the f- most famous lines in the play which is uh they ask how she's going if she's going to walk home and she goes walk uh, oh, not bloody likely, I'll take a taxi. And apparently walk, not bloody likely, is one of the most famous lines in English theater. I did not realize that. Really? I mean, it seems pretty unassuming. Um, bloody is not as unassuming as we take it for granted to be, I think. You mean like today or just in American culture? Both, perhaps. Both? Um... In the same way that we are now like accustomed to people saying plenty of swears on American television. Um, sure. Swears that we're not going to say on this here podcast. Sometimes I wish we could. But... I know, right? Uh, I think British culture might have gotten a little more lax about stuff like bloody, but it I'm sure it, it's, it has to do with religious connotations because they use it in the same way that like Irish uh, people sometimes say stuff like suffering Christ or whatever. Um, or in Shakespeare's time, you would say you would say zoons, which is God's wounds. For God's wounds, yeah, yeah. I knew I knew about that. I thought it was zounds. No, <laughs> God's wounds. <laughs> uh, oh no, God's wounds. Um, but apparently, after the play came out, it was uh, it was so scandalous that this woman who was passing off as an upper class woman was saying bloody. And that it was happening on an English stage. Uh, Scandalous. I know. That's, that wow. People used to say uh, Pygmalion instead of the word bloody. Man. Like, that's like a weird second round euphemism. I can just, I can just imagine people now, like the ladies are fainting, the men, like their <laughs> monocles are falling out in surprise. <laughs> well, and I remember when I saw the, when I saw the play... This was maybe five years ago, six years ago. People clapped on the line. And I get, like, it was well delivered. Like, it wasn't poorly done. But I did not, I guess I didn't realize how famous or important it was. Which is odd, because it's just the words not bloody likely. But what are you going to do? Um, so then the next thing that happens, you see uh, Eliza, Pickering, and Higgins uh, home at Higgins's house and it's like midnight after another party that you haven't seen which happened off stage where she totally passed as a duchess at this dinner party and so Higgins has won the bet against Pickering and for a good three or four pages uh Higgins and Pickering talk about how the bet's over and so they don't have to worry about her anymore and Higgins talks about how bored he is with everything and Eliza's like in the room, but they haven't acknowledged her. And they talk about how, you know, she's just around and going to be around now. And then they go to bed and she gets really mad and he comes back into the room looking for his slippers and she throws his slippers at him. And it's this big thing. Um, and she gets really upset because she doesn't know what she's supposed to do now because she won his bet. And she proved that he could transform her, but now she can't go back. Um, and she also doesn't feel like he values her at all as a person. Well, because he just was like, okay, I, I successfully transform you. Good night. 
Yeah, exactly. He wasn't even like talking to her. He just like <laughs> he just peaced. Well, no, and it's interesting because the play, and this is probably I, if I recall correctly, one one of the big differences between the play and My Fair Lady, uh, there's no scenes of him actually teaching her anything. I don't know if that is like because the whole like rain in Spain thing. Right. Yeah. And as I was reading about My Fair Lady, um, part of the work of adapting the play to a musical and some of the stuff may have been in the film too was just you know filling in the gaps between the scenes that happen in the play itself yeah because there's a lot of stuff that's like implied but not set up that you could easily fit like a scene or a song or a dance or something into and make it like better suited for a musical oh of course and and even just the fact that this play takes place in three locations higgins's house his mom's house and the street like if you were going to do much more than that uh the type of play would be very different like it wouldn't be this realist drama or realist romantic comedy whatever you want to call it uh so then Eliza storms out after Higgins treats her like crap and then uh he the next morning he goes to uh his mom's house and he can't find her and of course Eliza went there and she's upstairs and She's all upset, and Higgins, you know, refuses to admit that he has anything to do with that. And then Mr. Doolittle shows up again, and apparently after their first meeting, uh, Higgins was so taken with the way the man spoke and his odd reasoning and logic that he wrote a letter to some American, you know, professor about how wonderful he was. And the the professor dies and leaves Mr. Doolittle, like, all this money what? on the account okay. that he will, like, come around and give lectures all the time. <laughs> and Doolittle's argument is that he can't afford, to, he, can't, he can't, like, morally afford to not take the money, but now the money forces him to be upper class, and it's, like, ruining his life. <laughs> oh, geez. So, uh, yeah. So some more... Uh, some more about what happens when you force the trappings of upper class life on somebody who's not like ready to handle it. Exactly. And and he handles yeah. it with much more humor. Um it's it's much more caricatured. Uh but what that also does from a plot perspective is kind of it solves the question of what's going to happen to Eliza um because she has someone to provide for her um right. monetarily as in the like now in the realm of uh wealth that she is existing in you know with her new demeanor mm-hmm. um and then there's a really long scene between her and higgins about what's going to happen between the two of them and you know him saying that you know she's still a flower girl or whatever and she fights she fires back that he he always treated her like a flower girl even when she became a lady and she learned to be a lady because Pickering always treated her like a lady even when she was a flower girl kind of thing. And th- that's this is when uh, she calls Higgins out on being a jerk and he's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. I'm a jerk to everyone. It's totally <laughs> fine. Uh, I'm going to use that as, as an excuse for good. everything now because apparently it works. He kind of like almost proposes to her 
or like because he he keeps trying to get her to come back and live with him but without any sort of explicit relationship and uh he you know talks about how all humans are dependent on other people and she keeps saying how terrible he treats her and how he ignores her so she won't ever do that and uh she ends up deciding that she's going to go teach phonetics herself uh, and use the things that he taught her to be an independent person, and he gets all jealous and angry about it. And then it boils down to them going off to her dad's wedding uh, because he's finally going to marry his, you know, mistress or whoever he's been seeing um, now that he's a respectable person. And... uh, Higgins kind of ignoring the scene that came prior, or at least pretending to, you know, gives Eliza all sorts of errands that she needs to run, and she ignores them and says goodbye and and walks out, and that's like the end of the play. Um, And everyone in Shaw's time was all upset that they did not end up together. Uh, Why would they end up together, though? Like, he is such... He sounds like such a jerk the whole time. And then at the end, like maybe begrudgingly, he comes to acknowledge that she's a human person. So let me read you the description of Henry Higgins that Shaw gives you in the stage directions. Okay. He is. And then I, and then I want to read what Shaw said about people who were changing the ending during his life. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so here's, I think Shaw thinks you're supposed to like Henry Higgins in spite of himself. Because Shaw respects the um, this man, Henry Sweet, who was a phonetics professor and linguist, uh, that while Higgins isn't directly based on him, he, he certainly inspired him. And Sweet was apparently this genius who, who helped create phonetics and, and phonetic alphabets, uh, but he was really cantankerous and sort of a, sort of a D-bag. Um, so here's, here's Shaw's description of Higgins. He is of the energetic, scientific type, heartily, even violently interested in everything that can be studied as a scientific subject, and careless about himself and other people, including their feelings. He is, in fact, but for his years and size, rather like a very impetuous baby, taking notice (laughs) eagerly and loudly, and requiring almost as much watching to keep him out of unintended mischief. So he's a giant baby. His manner varies from genial bullying when he is in a good humor to stormy petulance when anything goes wrong. But he is so entirely frank and void of malice that he remains likable even in his least reasonable moments. So that is the first thing. like a sociopath or something. And Shaw is is totally on his side. So Shaw (laughs) is like, this guy can be a jerk to anyone and I still think he's a good guy. I guess that's what happens sometimes when when you write something and you have a protagonist is like you yourself get attached to them or you think you're conveying something in their demeanor that that is not coming through. Yeah. And so you end up thinking they're like way, way better people than they actually are. Which which is weird because at the same time, I don't get the sense that Shaw dislikes Eliza and he actually lets her win, you know, in a sense like he he does not you know, have her fall in love for Higgins with Higgins, despite all his faults. And I want to get to the the things that you wanted to pull up about the ending in just a second. Like he lets her be her independent woman in spite of the fact that he set up Higgins. He wants Higgins to be as likable as possible, even though he knows that he's a total 
jerk face. <laughs> well, and, and what I kind of like about the ending is that it takes this thing that Higgins takes a lot of pleasure in and gets a lot. Like, I get the sense that he has a lot of his self-worth invested in, like, how he speaks and, like, knowing how people speak. Yes. And then this, you know, this flower girl who, like, the the whole point of the experiment was, you know, let me take this uncultured, not even really worth it person and make everyone think she's a lady. So, like, literally anybody with enough, like, work can just take this thing that he's devoted his life to and run with it and leave him... I don't know, leave him unempowered or something, I guess. I yes. don't even. Yeah, because it, it depends on if you, depends on what you do with any of the things that he teaches you, right? Like you could show up to him and, and take some lessons on how to say certain syllables better. But if you, you take it to the, to the extreme, to the logical extreme and transform yourself entirely uh, then potentially you could, you know, surpass him in in some way, right? Um, what did What did you want to say about about the endings? Okay, so there was, um, you know, there's this production of Pygmalion that's going on, um, during the 1914 run. There's this guy named uh, Herbert Beerbaum Tree, I think is how you'd pronounce it, but I'm not, I'm not sure, sure. sure. Um, who played Henry Higgins and ran the the um ran the theater that the show was being performed in mm-hmm. and so shaw comes back to see the hundredth performance of the show and watches uh henry higgins toss a bouquet down to eliza at the end oh and so so tree says to shaw my ending makes money you ought to be grateful to which shaw responds your ending is damnable you ought to be shot <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty good. And then there was um for it Wikipedia, according to Wikipedia, which is just our gold standard for research for these shows, um in 1916 and in some subsequent editions, there's a postscript note that yep. that Shaw throws in mm-hmm. that's um that's all about how it's supposed to end and like what the point of the ending is. Like Eliza's supposed to have the upper end. She's supposed to, I mean, she's supposed to get the upper hand. She's supposed to, you know, reject Higgins and then she's gone at the end. Like there's, there's no, there's no chance that they are supposed to be together. Yeah. And he, he does that in a very verbose manner. It takes him a long time to get to that final conclusion. Like what you just said sums up the entirety of what Shaw did with his quote unquote sequel. Because that's what he calls it. <laughs> um, he 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 writes like a seven-page tract that was in the edition that I read, where he talks about how Eliza marries. Uh, if Eliza were to marry, she would marry Freddie, who's the the son of another woman that you meet in the play. And they they open their flower shop, and it's not great, but it's okay. And sometimes they hang out with Pickering, and they occasionally hang out with Higgins. And that's fine. Um, and then he ends it with saying, you know, uh, she likes Freddie and she likes the Colonel, but and she does not like Higgins and Mr. Doolittle. Galatia never <laughs> does quite like Pygmalion. His relation to her is too godlike to be altogether agreeable. Um, so he's like, stop 
wanting them to get together, you simpletons. It's not about that. Yeah, and like even even the musical version ends on a note of like, well, will they? Like maybe they will. Like I guess it fades out at the end and it lets people take from it whatever they will. And then the obvious implication is that people can imagine whatever sappy crowd-pleasing happy ending they want for this that was my understanding of it just hearing about my fair lady is that that is it does end on a on a more upbeat note um than pygmalion i I don't know that pygmalion even necessarily ends on a downbeat note as much as a like good for you eliza he's a yeah right like (laughs) sisters getting it for themselves (laughs) um but yeah yeah no i don't i don't think it is a i don't think it is a down note especially for eliza who i think we are we the audience are supposed to sympathize a lot more than like this jerk who knows how to talk good oh yeah <laughs> so. well and he's he's totally it is amusing to watch him be flippant in the face of uh social mores like when they're all hanging out at his mom's house and his mom has these things uh called at home days did i talk about these when we were reading the awakening I don't think so. so. I think when you were an upper class person, you would have certain days of the week where you were just supposed to sit in your house and have people come over. Okay. But like not every obviously not everyone would have the same at home day. Like you, Andrew, might be like, Oh, Tuesday's my day at home and then so then people will come visit you. So like you're receiving audiences. Yeah, it's on your rec- it's your receiving day. <laughs> huh. Uh and so he would come, you know, he shows up at, at his mom's receiving day and there's all sorts of other people there and he brings Eliza to, to show her off. Um, but before that happens, he kind of like, he's like flopping around the room and sitting on the ottoman goofy and like talking back to people and, you know, just saying things just to get rises out of people. And it's it's witty and it's funny, but it's not necessarily charming. And I think that's supposed to be the point. Um, whereas Eliza is very earnest, even when she's occasionally, she's not dumb, but she she occasionally misses things um, because she is too focused uh, on us on one thing at a time. Sure. Um, so it's Higgins is is a is a weird character in that way because he he's he is a big baby. He's just a big baby. <laughs> um, do you want that to to be the closing note, or do you have anything else that you want to like bring it home with? Um, I think Henry Higgins is a big baby is is about as strong <laughs> as we can, as, we, as a conclusion as we can come. Yeah, on. I, I think that it is a it's a it's a fascinating portrait of where gender relations were at this in this time period and and the idea that specifically with regards to class because i I don't think that that's necessarily something that we in america especially have any idea of right now in terms of i think it's what this was it's um we've we've read enough british stuff from enough different time periods that we're kind of getting to the point where you can sketch out a rough like a rough timeline of of class in in like the 1800s and the 1900s in Britain, which is kind of cool. But yeah, I think, I think here you, 
I don't know, like like you're seeing more explicit acknowledgments of how little it takes to to separate the lower class from the upper class. Like all you need to do is talk right or like come on to some money or something. And that's that's really it has nothing to do at all almost with the content of your of your character. There are just these superficial kind of things that you that you need and then you can switch classes. Like you're you're seeing the I don't know if you're seeing the lines blur, but you're seeing them like pointed out and maybe ridiculed a little more frequently. Oh, totally. I mean, that's that's something that was apparent in importance of being earnest, right? Uh, just that is like all these all these weird rich fops and their crazy adventures. Well, and that much. it's all at this point in time, and and I'm sure even now, but at definitely at this point in time it was all being questioned as as a as a systemic form of hypocrisy Mm -hmm. right of like well why why does why is that important it's important because you say it's important that's the only thing that lends it any sort of value you know right but then but then the flip side of that argument is well it does it is worth discussing and it is important because it affects people's lives like that's I think the ultimate strength of Pygmalion is between Eliza and her father, comic as they can be sometimes, it presents a good argument for how this system can alienate people. Um, and Eliza specifically can kind of leave them adrift because she doesn't have a place. There's a good a whole part of the play where she's no idea what part of society she's supposed to be in. Right, yeah. Because she doesn't have the means without Higgins to exist as a lady she doesn't she isn't really a lady um but she can't go back because of what she's been taught um and and that's that's the potential tragedy there that is averted yeah Uh, Yeah. man i just i really don't like henry higgins like even in my fair lady like you look at some of the names for the songs and the song that he sings when he realizes that he maybe likes Eliza is I've grown accustomed to her face. Yeah, there's that. Let me which leave. is like the driest, crappiest um, way to say that you like somebody okay. that what I think the, I can think of. What is the actual the actual line is something like I've grown accustomed to her voice and her appearance. Um, and what's great is Eliza throws that back at him because she's like well you have me on your recordings and you have photos of me so if you ever miss me you can listen and look at those right yeah because that's all you need he doesn't Um, actually want her is the idea so yeah that's so uh yeah there there you go and I will I I agree with you Henry Higgins is a big jerk and it actually uh made the play I think less enjoyable to read because whatever charisma he's supposed to have, I find a little lacking on the it's page. It's just not coming through. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't remember him being totally unlikable on stage when I saw it, but I'm sure a, an actor can imbue him with some kind of, I don't know, distracted charm. Maybe Yeah, that's what it has to be. It has to be that absent minded, um, you have to almost yeah, Sherlock, really, it, almost Sherlock, right? Almost Sherlock, except I think Sherlock, or at least in some incarnations, is like he uses his um, observations to be intentionally mean. But yeah, the you you have to go like the distracted kind of. You really have to lean into the aspect of his personality where 
he's a jerk, but he does it to everybody and he doesn't do it with malice and he doesn't even really realize that he's doing it. That's like the only hope. Yeah, it really is. Get, is if, really if you can is. make people realize that there's not any ill will behind it or something. Which is such a hard argument when you when you spend the rest of the play talking up how successful and smart he is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, um, if you've grown accustomed to our voices, oh, geez. you can send us an email about it at uh, overduepod at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter at twitter.com slash overduepod and facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, you can like us and you can write to us and all the other stuff. Um, and we will also post up on those various social networks about like the books that we're going to be reading and some other interesting stuff that we find. So, uh, so, so yeah, keep, keep an eye up there. We also post all this information on our website, overduepodcast.com, uh, where you may have found this episode and you can also find older episodes of the show. Uh, you will also see Amazon links to some of the books that we have read, most of the books, if not all of the books that we've read, uh, which you can use to track down those books and read along or uh, read a book that you found interesting. There's also a link to our iTunes page where you can rate and review us, which we'd greatly appreciate. It helps new people find the show. And you can also uh, use our RSS feed to subscribe uh, to it. The show, (laughs) I mean, if uh, you haven't done that in any other form already. Andrew, what are you reading next? Do you know? All right. I'm going, it's it's a little long and I have some, I actually have some other non-overdue stuff I'm trying to read through. <sighs> but I am going to make a go of reading Bram Stoker's Dracula Ooh. for next week, which apparently is pretty good. Okay. And that's one of the ones, every once in a while we'll read a book that's like old enough that it's in the public domain. So if you've got a phone or a tablet or whatever that can read Kindle books, you can get this one for free. So if you're thinking of reading along or if you just want to have a good book to save for your next plane ride or something like go grab it we have a link we won't get anything from it but neither will the estate of bram stoker i guess i don't know it all it all works out for everybody uh great well i look forward to that that sounds exciting yeah and uh we will we will talk at you next week in the meantime try to be happy Hello, hello, governor. Hello, hello, check, check. Hello. Fishing checks. Fishing checks. <laughs> Traditional um. British breakfast. Fishing checks. Get your fishing checks here. I got, got to use the jacks. Got to, got to take a croup in the jacks later because I ate too much fishing checks. Hold on, then. I got, I got to take the lift to the lorry. <laughs> what? Took a Johnny right out a window. Got, I ate him on the the second story of a bus. I did. <laughs> <laughs>